Cannes Lion in Real Life is back. And the Meaningful Media podcast headed down to Cannes to talk about meaningful media, the media that matters. We'll be joined by leadership from the Financial Times, Universal Music Group, TikTok, Vice, and more during the festival to discuss some big issues, including how brands can support minority creators, how best to protect and fund a free press, and how we can work with passionate fan communities in music and football. I'm really excited to host Gen Z historian and TikTok sensation, the inspirational Khalil Green. And we'll also be joined by Sasha Vakilina of Euronews, who'll be sharing her thoughts as a working journalist and broadcaster, including her experience reporting from the ground in Ukraine. I hope you enjoy this very special Canline episode, recorded in front of a live audience at the Havas Cafe. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the final live recording of the Meaningful Media podcast, live from the Cannes Cafe. I've got a very special group of guests with me today. And with that, we're going to get into the episode. And today, we're going to be exploring the power of media ethics to keep democracy in the light. From reporting on the climate crisis to fighting disinformation, the fourth estate has never been more important. The ongoing crisis in Ukraine has brought the need for high quality news media into renewed focus. As the slogan of the Washington Post so aptly puts it, democracy dies in darkness. Most of our guests and panelists, when asked what meaningful media do they start their day with, choose news. Many also cite trusted news sources as their most meaningful media. Yet funding news continues to be a challenge. We know automated brand safety approaches damage news, but during the early stages of the pandemic, up to 80% of digital news media was defunded, and breaking news coverage of the invasion of Ukraine has been entirely demonetized in some cases. Why are brands so concerned by hard news? I'm delighted to be joined today in the Havas Cafe at Cannes by three special guests. Together, we're going to explore just why trusted quality journalism is so important and how brands can support and get and engage in this most meaningful media. A big warm welcome to my guests, Sasha Vakalina, business editor, Euronews. A Ukrainian journalist, Sasha leads the channel's global business affairs coverage, contributing daily to Euronews' live news programs. Sasha also provides analysis and insight into the world's major headline stories and business trends. Sasha is also the channel's representative at business and political events, most recently at the World Economic Forum in Davos. We're really lucky to have her here today. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And introducing Jesse Angelo, president of global news and entertainment Vice Media Group. Jesse, formerly CEO and publisher of the New York Post, leads three of Vice global businesses, news, digital and TV. Under his leadership, there's a renewed focus on audience and creative enterprise for the 15,000 pieces of content made in 25 languages daily at Vice. And also joining me today, David Buttle, global director, policy, platforms and commercial marketing at the Financial Times. With a dual role at the FT, David leads on public affairs and is responsible for interfacing with tech platforms, governments and regulators. He's also the global commercial marketing director, leading a global team that executes all advertiser-facing marketing. What a panel we have today. Welcome to you all and on with the show. So let's get to it. Let's talk about the reality of the news media right now. Sasha. You've been steeped in reporting on the war in Ukraine and have a unique perspective as a Ukrainian national. What's been your experience reporting in Ukraine and what's the state of the free press there right now? Well, my reporting in Ukraine was rather unusual. I arrived 10 days before the war started to Kiev to do the political coverage with all the warnings from the Western countries and the intelligence services. And then I found myself, of course, in the middle of 
of the full-scale invasion of Russia into Ukraine. And this is the big takeaway here is that I'm the business editor. I'm normally in charge of business and economy and hard news, but rather political economic news. What happened with the coverage of the war in Ukraine that me, as so many other Ukrainian journalists as well on the ground and foreign journalists on the ground, we all had to turn into war reporters overnight. Mm. We were not asked if we can cover that. But once you're working in news, you don't ask yourself the question either. You're going with a duty and you have to cover that. Practically speaking, that means that something that is normally very complex, as my colleagues here would confirm, um, the trainings, the necessary knowledge when it comes to reporting from the conflict zones, all that had to be done in my case over the phone within like 15, 20 minutes. So this is the reality when it comes to my experience of covering the war in Ukraine. And I stayed for, for, the, week, for the first week of the war, I covered it there before going back to France. I'm normally based in France. And when it comes to how my case was different, I'm an international journalist. I work for the international news organization Euronews, uh, but I'm Ukrainian national. And this is when this balance went uh, into, into action of being an international journalist and reporting. I reported mostly in English, but into the international audience, of course, when you have Euronews we broadcast in many languages. But my inside knowledge of some of the Ukrainian things and mentality, and to give you the example, when we were preparing the coverage at the editorial meetings at Euronews, after all the warnings by Western governments uh, that the invasion would happen, we were thinking, of course, as in all the newsrooms and all the editorial meetings and meetings as you guys had, how, what would happen then? What would, how would Ukrainians react? How would Ukraine react? And this is where... In my case, being Ukrainian helped understanding the mentality and how things would develop because immediately my take here was, no, Ukrainians will not back down. Mm -hmm. They're going to go and fight. And this was the big thing that, and this is when my editorial team, of course, also trusted me into my judgment of that. So this is the combination. Of course, we're going factual, we're news, we have to be, we are only taking the facts and the objective coverage. But being Ukrainian, covering this war, and I continue doing so, together with my business and economy editor duties, this, what, this is something that gave uh, Euronews specifically a very unique state. When it comes to the, the media situation and the freedom of press in Ukraine these days, we have to give it to all the Ukrainian journalists who are there on the ground. They have been working absolutely tirelessly. They are not war correspondents, all of them either, but they have been running. And in the first early days of the war, I saw people running. Uh, we were in Kiev. Kiev was the primary target, as you remember, in the mm. first weeks of the war. And I saw, you know, guys running around without protective gear, without bulletproof wow. vests, without helmets. Didn't have it in the early days and th that they didn't stop them. So this is something that I think says a lot about the, about the situation with the media when it comes to that. Well, I think we should thank you for your reporting and your colleagues reporting. That was, that was so powerful. Thank you. So we heard from Sasha a really powerful example of why news is so important. So I want to turn to Jesse and David now to unpack the health of the overall media ecosystem right now. Are we supporting the vital work that Sasha and colleagues like her are doing? Um, you know, I think it's a really interesting conversation. This, when you talk about the news and brands and advertising, it always starts with this conversation of saving the world, saving democracy, and those things, of course, uh, are paramount. It is why I picked up a pen and paper and became a journalist when I was 19 years old. And yes, it was a pen and paper at that time. 
Um, but, you know, I think what's left out of the conversation or where I want to see the conversation go is that news is actually an incredibly effective way for brands to meet their business objectives and meet their KPIs. We know, we have proof, exposure to news and people reading, looking at advertisements in news environments, it raises brand affinity, it raises purchase intent, it does all the things that, that a marketer needs. But more importantly for me, it, especially with young people, we're the world's largest um, uh, youth news service and you know, it allows advertisers to um, tap into passion points for young consumers, right? If you ask young people what they're passionate about, it's, um, you know, it's climate and sustainability, it's LGBTQ uh, rights and culture, it's the future of food, the future of technology, the future of work. That's actually my news list every morning, right? We're covering those things. We're talking about those things in an authentic voice with young journalists to those young people. And because of that trust that we have with our audience, when you know those those that audience is looking for allies, they are looking for brands that are going to stand up and align with the causes they care about. And I think that brands who do that are actually richly rewarded by those audiences. They you know the young kids they're they're very 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 smart and they know when somebody's standing on the right side of history. And I think news is an incredible way for brands to engage with history and you know relevant to what we're all doing here. Uh, this week in Cannes, and also win prizes. Uh, our news division won two Grand Prix and a gold uh, this this week, which is unprecedented. So, um, you know, I think I think that's where I want to see the conversation happen. Congratulations, and and testament to that is we saw from our own research that that during the pandemic, Gen Z and millennials actually came to trusted news and have stayed with it and increased their consumption. Again, going back to that point that people's meaningful media is often news. Yeah. So, David. You, you are responsible for one of the most premium, largest uh, and uh, thoughtful, I guess, um, news coverage. The Journal of Capitalism, um, you know, broke fantastic stories about Wirecard most recently. What's your feeling on the, the state of the media ecosystem? I mean, I think, broadly speaking, I'm positive about it. There's been, I think, an analysis of the, the news media ecosystem needs to be seen in the context of a 20-year shift from... Um, from a print platform, essentially a print platform, to a digital platform, and um, and that started badly for news publishers. Basically, there was this sense that you could build a huge audience online and you'll work out monetization later. Um, and gradually, what's happened over the last sort of probably seven, eight years is that there's a realization that you need direct relationships with your consumers, and that's a useful heuristic for any business in the world to have a direct relationship and a value exchange with, with your customer um, um, is, is only a good thing. And that's, and that's effectively what's happened. The Financial Times pursued a subscription model early um, in, in the transition to digital. Um, and now we're seeing um, the rest of the news media ecosystem follow that. Um, so from whilst there are challenges around monetization of um, challenging news content, and that might be around the war in Ukraine, there's a dual model now um, and primarily the model that uh, premium publishers are pursuing is subscription mm. um, so uh, I'm bullish about where we are I think in terms of um, the the overall health of the media ecosystem it's been a difficult few years but I think there's a really interesting point about the about the supply chain and you asked about the supply chain that I think is important because especially for for advertising supported news that is aiming to reach you know large mass global audiences especially of young people who may not be able to pay for subscriptions and so on um, you know, the 
companies spend enormous amounts of time and enormous amounts of comms budgets um, talking about their supply chain, right? If you're a coffee company, where you source your where you source your coffee, how it gets to the counter, how it gets into my cup, is of paramount. It is a board level matter, and it is something that they're, they're, all of their teams talk about consistently. But there's nowhere near that kind of attention to the media supply chain. And you know, for for in in, in the ad supported space where so much buying is done programmatically, there has to be attention paid to what's happening there in news environments. I'll give you a perfect example of it. When during the Black Lives Matter moment, during this sort of global racial reckoning that happened um, uh, year before last, one of the most important moments in, in any of our lifetimes, um, you know, every company out there put a black square on their on their social feeds and said that they were on the right side of history. At the same time, one of the world's largest entertainment companies came to us, their agency came to us, and they said, hey, we have a new, uh, we have a new blacklist of words that we don't want to be next to programmatically. First of all, the very use of the word blacklist, we reject, we mm. call them blacklists. But second of all, here's what was on their list. Black, black people, black lives matter. That's not a microaggression, that's a macroaggression. Mm. That is racist, that's not okay. And that is the kind of thing, if young audiences knew that and understood that, they would torch that brand forever. Mm. So let's pick up on that because both of you have talked about the engagement with your audience. Sasha, do you feel that there's an engage a different kind of engagement with the audience now? You you're obviously quite present on social platforms. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, absolutely. I would say that there's lots of engagement with the audience happening on my side. I'm pure editorial, right? Mm. So this is uh, this is slightly different. Uh, in my case, uh, whatever I go with, whatever I report. For me, it's mostly TV, so it also makes it a bit easier. People see me, and they, they can, you know, that's easier. They see me, they know how I look, they know right. how I, you know, that that's a bit also different, which builds some connections as well there. And but the to, to make sure that this engagement's happening and it's strong, and it has to be. Uh, I, whatever I work on, editorially speaking, it's an essential part of my job. This is not an extra. Mm. to make sure that whenever anybody from the audience or reading or watching or whatever listening that they can come back to me at any moment to yeah. ask me a question of what have i done what's that why why did i say this what what happened there and this is not an extra this is the reality of news media you have to do it this is an absolute without this mm. you can't do good solid news uh to give you some examples uh like on a daily basis i receive some messages on social media i receive messages on twitter on instagram sometimes i receive those written letters they come in envelopes wow. to the office with some feedback of people who watched and sometimes these are people who are not living in big cities so you see yeah i know when was last time you received a letter right or sent one like the proper one with three pages writing are they right? from jesse because he was talking about that. but this is great and i think this we should really encourage that because here am i please do hold me accountable for what i do yeah and this is great, and that's what they should do. And this is why we are here as well as news, news media. We are ready to do that same way as we're going to be holding accountable everybody else from all level. I want to briefly, because we talked about this before, but there's a, an element of emotional labour that I'm always intrigued by for working journalists, especially given the, the challenges of monetization at the moment. Do you ever feel that? Do you feel sometimes, on our first podcast here, we talked with Khalil Green, Gen Z historian, he's brilliant, and he talked about creator burnout. Do you, do you sometimes feel, feel that burnout or...? Well, yeah, well, we're not robots, certainly, yeah. but um, yes, it might happen. But this is the trick and this is something that I'm going to say, I think it goes with all news journalists. Mm. Whenever you work in news, no matter how tired you are, if there is a story, you just go after that story. 
And then you're going to be tired a bit later when that story is done, if there is no new story. Because no matter how tiring it is, this is also, this is where we get our energy from, right? Yeah. This is, you get inspired by that. And it's just some kind of, you know, you have to be news, you've got to be passionate about news. Yeah. That's it. So to pick up on both those things, David, how, how is the FT supporting and thinking about engaging with brands, monetization models, but also support for the talent uh, when it comes to the expanded universe beyond uh, effectively what's being published uh, on the page? So I'm thinking, you know, webinars, socials, so you're obviously thinking about that. So if you can talk about that. The FT works with um, brands primarily in the, uh, the luxury consumer space and um, international business to business um, um, companies. Um, and what we seek to do is to find ways to enable those those businesses to connect and create authentic connections with um, our our readers who are highly engaged, who pay for our content, um, and we can do that in like like I'm sure Jesse can with Vice um, through multi platforms. So whether that's audio, whether that's video, whether that's creating real life experiences um, that allows brands to connect with consumers, and those consumers are there because they 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 turn to us to make decisions in their life at home at work because um because because of the the investment we make in our journalism mm. so there's that direct there's that direct understanding you think of of your readers with the investment in the journalism yes i think so absolutely but i mean from a brand perspective i don't think brands have an obligation to 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 fund journalism per se. Mm. I think brands and marketers' primary ob obligation is to deliver performance, performance marketing and performance to, um, for, and shareholder value. But by thinking about the, the ways you deliver that and um, some of the points that Jesse touched on in, in relation to um, supply chain transparency, for example, mm. audience validation, if you pursue those objectives, which are about commercial performance, then you end up funding better journalists. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I mean, I'm a bit shocked that someone from the FT would refocus us on shareholder value. So, <laughs> Jesse, like, can I turn to you on that, on this question? Because Vice is definitionally meaningful media for a whole generation. And your work at the New, New York Post was, again, some of the most immersive, important media experience. You know, many people will say that about the, the Post. Well, it, it's interesting. I think actually the, the, the two questions you asked about um, sort of personal engagement on new platforms and also sort of the mental health and, and um, trauma that journalists go through doing their job are actually quite related in a strange way. Um, so, you know, we saw um, through uh, uh, the conflict in Ukraine, you know, we are famous for our, our conflict reporting, our boots on the ground, um, journalism, um, you know, going further and taking uh, in many ways, a bigger risk than a lot of news organizations will do. Uh, unlike Sasha, who was thrown into that uh, with no training, we do extensive training. We have extensive security teams. We are very, very expert. Next time I'm going to get my training, I promise you. Yes, will you please? You are welcome. We, we, we run them for anybody in the newsroom. You are, you are completely welcome. Um, so we have we have a deep experience in this. But, you know, we had, uh, uh, when the invasion started, we had about six or seven um, teams on the ground uh, in Ukraine. And... You know, we have slowly been moving a lot of our journalism to be vertical video first. We know that's where young audiences are. And the explosion of engagement that we saw on our TikTok channel um, was extraordinary. Uh, in the first two weeks of the, of the Ukraine conflict, uh, we had 250 million views uh, on TikTok. I mean, the numbers were astounding. And this was real journalism on the ground, people in the railway stations in Ukraine, people under fire, um, talking authentically to young people about what was going on. And it was so, I mean, I, I wanna say 
refreshing or validating or it made me sort of wake up and remember why I do this, which was that this was real journalism and young people cared passionately about it. This wasn't, no offense to my competitors who do this, this wasn't journalists doing silly dances in the newsroom. This was the real stuff. And young people responded immediately. We now have 1.5 million followers on our TikTok channel. And the, the, you know, the reason is because of that authenticity of people hearing the news from people that look like them and sound like them and think like them. But the flip side of that and, you know, that engagement on those platforms or if we do Instagram lives with, with our journalists talking about um, stories they've been in or, or from conflict zones, and this is especially true, unfortunately, it's sad to say, for our black journalists and journalists of color, mm. but when they're out there live online, there's a lot of awful people on the internet who say awful things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, giving them the support, um, not just for the difficulties of having spent 10 days or two weeks on the ground in Ukraine, but also for what they are then subjected to on, in some online environments. Uh, you know, we spend a lot of resources trying to do that. We make a lot of resources available. We talk about it a lot as a newsroom. You know, there's sort of this old fashioned, oh, I'm just a rough and grizzled journo and we don't know. We talk about it all the time and it's something we're very open about. I mean, it's a, you know, it can be a very, very difficult job, but to your point, they do it because they love it. And, you know, between, COVID and then the Black Lives Matter moment and then the war it has been an exhausting, exhausting um, two or three years for our newsroom. But I guarantee you, like once once that conflict broke out, the emails start hitting your email. like, Hey, I want to go. Hey, I want to go. Hey, I want to go. Hey, I have an angle here. You know, I want to do this. I want to do that. So this is what this is what we do. You know. So it, I was thinking when we were we were kind of preparing for this that uh, the, the news media, the kind of fourth estate, really is the kind of like immune system of, of our society, of our democracy. And it's so visceral what you describe being on the ground and scrambling, perhaps without training, to report from a conflict. Yeah, but hey, I have to say here, um, important to say I was there without the training, not yeah. because, you know, I, I no, obviously course, work yeah, for yeah, a great course, organization yeah. and they yeah. definitely, this is the first thing they're going to do now. But, yeah. uh, but this was the reality yeah. that I found myself yeah. into. Uh, but also, to just to pick up very quickly on what Jess said about it's not about being this tough or whatever no it's about being real about caring and about being passionate and that's when you do that this is when you see the interaction and this is when you see right the reaction on social media and all the the reaction and, and the views and the followers as you said because this is the true thing you, it's not about being tough yeah. not tough and, and and that's I think honestly that's really where brands could and should plug in. I mean, obviously conflict coverage or, you know, those types of things is, is, is not the place necessarily for a brand. Um, although again, you know, why, why is that? Well, I mean, I get it from a, from a brand's perspective, but you know, the, the, I, I think there are ways for, for people to do that. Frankly, I think there are ways that that can be done. And I'll give you a, a perfect example. And this is something, um, that a brand could have attached to, you know, we, um, uh, our creative agency virtue, uh, also won a Grand Prix uh, this week um, for a project they did called Backup Ukraine. So what they realized was obviously the cultural heritage of, of Sasha's country was at risk here. Um, and so many statues, monuments, artifacts, buildings, you know, priceless um, uh, cultural treasures, things that people love and relate to in their town square were at risk. So, you know, given um, the new um, power of sort of LiDAR on, on, on later model phones and some apps like Polycam, uh, they actually partnered with UNESCO and they they tried to get 
people on the ground in Ukraine and had enormous response to literally make 3D models of all of the monuments mm. in their in their town and then upload it to the cloud. So there's a perfect 3D modeling rendering of all of these priceless objects. So if they get destroyed, they can literally be 3D printed and replaced. I mean, not replaced necessarily in the same way, but still at least. Um, so, so there was really a, a, a project to back up the entire cultural um, heritage of Ukraine in the cloud so that it couldn't be destroyed. So that's something where, to me, a smart, nimble brand or agency that saw that and said, that's a moment I could plug into and actually engage with history, right? I mean, that. so, I, you know, I, I think going to a brand and saying, hey, we're going to cover the coverage in Ukraine, you know, do you want to put your latest campaign, you know, in a bunch of banner ads against our written edit? I mean, you know, that's not going to work. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even <laughs> make that sales call. But I, I think, and this is what we do, we do a lot of is because, uh, again, you know, back to sort of the passion points of young consumers, when we get a brief from a brand that says, hey, we're really interested in sustainability or, or supply chain issues or, you know, uh, topics like that, um, we will go to our newsroom and say, hey, you know, what are the what are you working on that fits in this box that's interesting? What are you what projects do you want to do? If you if you had the resources, what amazing, brilliant ideas would you come up with? And they say, oh, geez, well, we want to do X, Y and Z. And we say, well, great. Are you OK if that's sponsored by brand? Why? And they say, sure, we don't care. That's great. Let's go. So, David, picking up on that, you obviously look after policy as well. Yeah. How do you make those kind of editorial calls? Or do they not exist for you because you have a subscription model? Yeah, I mean, it's, there, there are challenges around the monetization of challenging news content, yeah. right? And that's, that's a worrying thing for democracy in some sense, because if you can't monetize coverage of a war in Ukraine, then, then is that coverage going to, over the long term, happen? I think some of the... What we, what we see is that when, in incredible news cycles, then consumers turn to trusted media and consumers are paid to pay for trusted media. So that's my earlier point around like broadly being bullish about the future of news. That's driven by the direct relationship between consumers and news media and quality news media. Um, so, so, so yeah, there, there are challenges around monetization. There are challenges around um, the future of, I, well, well, actually, no, I mean, certainly um, monetizing that type of content, but um, but I, I think the North Star being direct relationships between consumers and new quality news media and then paying for that, um, yeah, leads me to be broadly positive. Sasha, how do you feel about this conversation as a, a working journalist? You've kindly come here to give us your time and we've had a rich discussion about monetization, but how does this, how does this make you feel? No, I think this is very important to have this conversation because, you know, I'm gonna just go sometime back to mm. the COVID pandemic and when we're all locked down and so on, and that was like, you know, we thought that was the trouble as well. And now here we are, as you said, it's never ending. It's like, we always say, okay, it's more important than ever. And it's always the moment, the next moment comes and it's even more important. This is the reality. I mean, that's how it works. But uh, during the COVID pandemic, there was a great report done by Reuters on the trends in journalism. That was, I think, 2021, might be wrong, 2022, 2021 when they said because of the pandemic and these unprecedented circumstances and the situation around the world, they saw enormous attention from the audience to go into trusted brands and listen to this public broadcasters. Yeah, something we saw in our own research, yeah. You know, so this is it. When you go home and when it comes to monetizing and investing and, and, and this, and when it comes to hard news, don't be afraid. When you all go back home, you want to watch good quality mm. news that you can trust. 
And I think consumers do understand the distinction, despite the challenges around. So, for instance, um, on social platforms, on search, the distinction between news media brands has, has been lost compared to, 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 to how we used to consume media. But actually, I think the evidence from the pandemic, from, from frankly, Trump's election, um, tells us that consumers do understand the distinction between high quality and not high quality news content. And they turn when they need to make decisions mm. about, about you know, th to inform their life, then they turn to quality news. And they turn to news that they have an affinity with. The, the, number, the number one um, thing sought out by young people um, online is music. Number two is news. So, you know, people think they say, oh, well, I'm going to put my whole budgets against sports or entertainment or all these other. Number two is news after music. Yeah, we see it time and time again. News is the most meaningful media. It's the first thing people check in the, in the morning. It matters. Think about that when it comes to any complicated situation. Of course, I'm going to bring out the example of the war in Ukraine. We all know about what's happening in Ukraine because of solid news journalism. And nowadays, unfortunately, there are places in Ukraine, you would all confirm, where there are no more journalists left some of the cities that are currently occupied, and we do not know what's happening there because there are no good, solid, quality, responsible news journalists on the ground in those cities, and we don't know what's happening there. Except for we do know there's a lot of disinformation and yeah. propaganda, and, you know, and that's you know, our, our motherboard team, which is um, you know, some of the, the best technology um, journalists on Earth, um, you know, has done a lot of reporting on, on sort of identifying a lot of the propaganda and misinformation coming out. Um, and, you know, th those, those types of sort of, especially with, with government actors, um, those campaigns are becoming incredibly sophisticated. And, again, I think, I think that's sort of as much as, uh-oh, here comes the rain, uh, <laughs> as much as there's, um, you know, a role to play for the active on-the-ground journalism of getting that story out of Kharkiv if nobody else is there. There's also the piece of, especially on um, large-scale distributed social platforms, picking apart what's real and what isn't. And I think there's a huge role for quality journalism to play there. So let's, let's get to that. Let's pick it up. Um, how much are the platforms to blame for both of these issues of myths and disinformation conflicting and overwhelming trusted news sources and also the difficulties we've had with monetization and i'm going to set this up which is we could argue that going back to classifieds and uh, being uh, removed and destroyed has affected the local press through to the monetization challenges in the platforms today as well as opportunities you, you talked about those with tiktok so i'm going to actually go to you david first on this because your role is so intersectional across policy as well as commercial so where are we with the platforms today I don't think we can blame the platforms, right? A new technology came along and it allowed people to connect in ways that they couldn't previously and at scale that they couldn't previously. And that has had a consequent effect on news. Um, and and that's, not, that's, not, that's not their fault. That's not anyone else's fault. So I think publishers on the whole, didn't, publishers um, didn't all respond to that in the right way. So it's not about us going, us blaming the platforms. It's about us responding within that economic environment. Um, and thinking about new ways that we can sustain our businesses and, and serve the function that we need to serve within society. Jesse, blow it up. We're not live. There will be an edit if we need it. <laughs> um, look, I, this is a whole nother podcast, but uh, I, look, I, I would, I'll take an optimistic um, uh, take on this, which is I think if you look at so much of the problems of what people point to um, in the in the news media ecosystem you know partisan politics masquerading as journalism 
um, disinformation and, you know, sort of confirmation bias of people's worst fears. If you look at that, first of all, a lot of that, um, I'm sorry to say, is the boomers, right? It's the cable, it's the U.S. cable news ecosystem and it's sort of copycats around the world. And then it's social platforms 1.0, like Facebook, recirculating a lot of that content, right? So in many ways, it's, 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 it is, of course, um, uh, there are problems within the algorithms that, that um, have led to this, although, uh, and different platforms, I think, have responded at different levels of genuine concern in trying to solve the problems, and I give a lot of them some credit. But I, you know, again, I, we always look for the kids to lead the way. That's, that's us as, as a global youth media organization. And if you look at the younger generations, um, you know, they're, they're not buying that stuff. They're, mm. they're, they're, they see right through it, and they totally understand it. And again, so I think, I think when you get to sort of the new generation of social media and you get to um, the vertical video-led revolution, um, I think there's a lot of hope there that um, that sort of the you know the wheat can be separated from the chaff in, in, in a really real way, and you you see a lot of these sort of really bogusy, clickbaity um, um, sites, you know, trying to pop up and do in the next iteration of social media what they did in the first iteration of social media. You know, those sites were incredibly effective and damaging and problematic again not to pick on them but on a platform like facebook whereas if you go to some of the newer platforms uh, i met with my good friends at, at at snap yesterday and they are they have absolutely changed the algo to punish clickbait like they're very aware of the issues and they mm -hmm. take it very seriously and they're trying to solve some of those issues so you know again i think that there's a lot of light at you know we're sort of halfway through that tunnel and i think there's some light at the end of it and, and furthermore from, from a regulatory perspective as well i think we're we're, we're starting to understand as society what we we expect of these platforms um in terms of content moderation in terms of risk assessments we've got legislation in europe in the uk that are dealing with the content side as well as the competition side so i think seen in the kind of grand sweep of this technological revolution that's happened over 20 years we're, like we're getting there right we're, we're, we're starting to understand that and we're starting to put rules in place um so yeah it's, it's again a positive i think broadly a positive um a, a positive trend line that we're on in relation to that no, I totally agree. I'm really positive on that side as well, because what we've been seeing is that, specifically as Jesse said as well, with younger generations and younger consumers, you know, and, and not only they see right through, but they do it so fast, instantly. Whilst sometimes you have to go into more of debunking with other consumers, these ones, they're going to teach you how to debunk, you know, and within a second, they don't need to be specialists in that. I mean, we do have the whole uh, social media newsroom. We had to make it in place. It's been a few years they're running. These are guys who specialize exactly in debunking and verifying and fact-checking. But this is done for a broader audience. When it comes to young news consumers and young followers there, they just do it themselves. Mm. And so this is fascinating. And this is something that gives so much optimism, you know, and positive feeling about these trends. What's remarkable for me is we talk about so much news literacy in schools. There's lots of programs in the US around this, as well as many other countries. Sounds like um, Jesse, uh, Sasha, David, you might be saying that maybe we need a, a news literacy program for the boomers. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Come on, everybody's <laughs> everybody's had to you know explain explain to their mother or their father uh, you know what you read on Facebook is not necessarily true, right? So I, I think. And then uh, you go in. At, who said that? Who posted that? What's the source? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Who's gonna fund that? Who's yeah. gonna fund that? I see. I see people clapping and saying it's a good idea. <laughs> I should say we don't have a boomer on the panel, so you know representation, not our lived experience, um, but uh, but yeah, a, a, an important point. So we'd like to finish 
the Meaningful Media podcast with the Fast Five. I wish we could go on longer. Uh, hopefully get you all together again. Such a rich conversation and you're all so brilliant and experts in your field. Let's get your Meaningful Media Fast Five to finish up. I'm going to go round the panel today. Uh, so five quick questions. Jesse, you first. What were you listening to, reading, watching on the way to camp? Uh, I am reading a book on medieval history called Powers and Thrones by Dan Jones, because when I have downtime, I like to go very far away from the news and get into weird places. Physical book or Kindle or something else? Uh, reading it, uh, Apple, Apple books. Okay. What's the media you start and end your day with? Uh, email to start the day to see everything that's going on with my teams and, and, and looking at links of all the stuff that they've been publishing. Uh, to end the day, New York Times crossword. What's your media guilty pleasure? Marvel movies and spy thrillers on planes. What media do you turn to when you want to get inspired? I mean, pictures of my kids. <laughs> You've got one media platform for the rest of your life. Which is it? Probably Apple Books, because you know you have a, a you know if you have a, if you have the whole world's library, you're never going to be bored. Fantastic, David, you're up. What were you listening to, reading, watching on the way to camp? So I'm, I'm a, like a, 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 a voracious um, consumer of news content. So I've got loads of subscriptions and just trying to feel like I'm getting the value out of the sort of five or six subscriptions I have. So obviously the FT, The Economist, the information I think is doing amazing work as well. Yeah. Um, so just trying to stay on top of that is, 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 is it, it, yeah, that was what I was doing all the way here. I feel you. What's the media you start and end your day with? The Ready For Today programme. Okay, public, public funded and linear radio, interesting. Great, yeah. What's your media guilty pleasure? Um, basically cooking shows. <laughs> like, because after work, I want to be able to disengage my brain. And there's a, a UK show that generates so much content. It's called The um, Great British Menu. Yeah. And there's just like hours and hours and hours of this stuff. So you can just turn it on and turn off, basically. <laughs> what media do you turn to when you want to get inspired? That's a good question. I mean, I was thinking about that, and I, I, it's going to be a shameless product plug, but FT Weekend, we write about how to live your life well. Um, and that inspires me to go to restaurants, to travel, um, and to think about the world in different ways. Good, snuck a plug in there as well, but exactly, no, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've got one media platform for the rest of your life, that's it, which is it? Uh, podcasts, without any doubt at yeah. all. Um, I, I'm a big cyclist, and I can, again, I, listen, I have hours, therefore, to, to listen to podcasts. So, um, yeah. Sasha. Interesting. So that's the part I have to prepare for, like specifically I'm in my notes. Okay, you ready? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. What were you listening to, reading, or watching on the way to camp? Now, I consume enormous amount of news, and I'm never tired of that. So first of all, that was for me, Euronews, but I'm going to specify there other media organizations as well, of course. I'm really into long formats, no yeah. matter whether it's video or read, the FT weekend. Mm. But, uh, you know, I love like super long political analysis that I can only read on the train or on the plane, and this is with my moment. I love that. Stuff. I love that moment. What's the media you start and you end your day with? So that has to be Euronews because I work for Euronews and that's what I see with the emails yeah. and so on, of course. Then as an international journalist, this is what I'm checking all the international medias as well. Checking the French medias, I'm checking the FM and the others, and I'm checking the Ukrainian media organizations that goes with digital mostly these days as well. Mm -hmm. There is the website called uh, Ukraine uh, Truth, Ukrainska Pravda, that's the one I'm checking regularly. And now because of the war in Ukraine, there is enormous amount of telegram channels as news, you know, context and this is what i'm reading through what's your media guilty pleasure twitter memes oh yeah i feel you what media do you turn to when you want to get inspired to get inspired i turned into raw footage of something and longer formats wow this is something that really gets me inspired and this is a bit of a no comment format as well mm. 
seeing and watching some of those. And I'm going to bring you here the example of some of the amazing works that was done by the um, AP guys, uh, cameraman in Mariupol, the pictures we have all seen. I've seen the raw footage. It's tough, but their work and what they've done, yeah. this is something that inspires me, raw footage. And is there a recommended place you can, you can get that? How, how would you say? Well, I'm a news journalist. They have yeah. all the news agencies. So, you know, but yeah, but if you go to the API, I think this is valuable yeah. because they really spread it all around and that was just an amazing job. This is what inspires me. Thanks for that. So the most difficult question, you've got one media platform for the rest of your life. That's it. One singular, which isn't going to be. Not only. The question actually that you sent me was the one apart from the one you work for. <laughs> yes, So hang course. on. That's, that's slightly, that's that's slightly a, that's different. A, that's a, that's a, that's yeah, a here there was like, long thought but the first thing that came to my mind that would be the guardian yeah okay interesting okay great another news another news platform well thank you very much to our amazing panel today this has been fascinating and we really appreciate your time thank you thanks ben that's the end of our special can lion 2022 podcast a big thanks to our guests for taking the time to join our panel discussion a huge amount to think of on this important topic We'd love to hear from you and get your thoughts on all things Meaningful Media. You can drop us an email to the following address, podcast at haveasmg.com. That's podcast at haveasmg.com. Please do remember to subscribe and follow the Meaningful Media podcast on your preferred platform so you don't miss any of our episodes. And follow us on our socials, all addresses in the show notes. Join me, Ben Downing, soon for more perspectives on Meaningful Media. In the meantime, wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for joining us for this special Can content.